0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton,
1: originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School,
0: this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, I'm your host today, and I am here with my dear colleague and co-host, Mike Yusine. And today we have a wonderful opportunity to interview a very special guest, an expert on the coronavirus pandemic. We're excited to have this opportunity to discuss leadership during a health crisis with Dr. Rachel Levine, who is Pennsylvania's Secretary of Health. Dr. Levine, welcome to Leadership in Action. Well, I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's really, it's an honor and a pleasure. Let me just say a little word about you before we get into the interview. Dr. Levine joined the Wolf administration in January, 2015 as the Physician General of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Dr. Levine served from 2015 to 2017. She was named Acting Secretary of Health in July, 2017 and confirmed as Secretary of Health in March, 2018. She's a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine, and the Academy for Eating Disorders. She is also the president of ASTHO, the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials. Dr. Levine, uh, really an honor and a pleasure to have you here today and there's so much to discuss i hardly know where to begin but let's start with the present we're having an increase a spike in the coronavirus right now can you tell us from your perspective what you are anticipating in the short in the short term in the coming coming weeks to thanksgiving and the holidays sure um so covid-19
2: clearly is the biggest public health challenge that we have faced Uh, in Pennsylvania, in the United States, and globally in over 100 years. Um, This is a global pandemic of of, uh, very significant proportions. So we are in our fall resurgence, um, and we have been anticipating this. Uh, We have been discussing this for months and preparing for this for months. Um, Pennsylvania is seeing exactly the same increases that are being seen throughout the country, Uh, Every state in the country is seeing increases like this. Uh, It is particularly centered in the Midwest and the Mountain West. But again, every state. Uh, Pennsylvania is not an island. And so we're going to be seeing the same increases. But Hawaii is an island, and they're seeing increases too. So unfortunately, it is everywhere. Um, It is in every age group. Um, you know, we are seeing increases in younger people um, in their in their twenties, uh, but we're seeing increases in individuals in the thirties and forties, and seniors as well, um, and increases in young in children, um, although not to the extent that we see in other other age groups. Uh, in Pennsylvania, it is in every region of Pennsylvania. Uh, data today actually indicates that 61 of 67 counties in Pennsylvania are seeing increases in their seven-day case counts. Um, so uh, this is not just uh, located in urban areas. Uh, the spring uh, surge uh, that, that we saw, the spring wave was predominantly in the southeast uh, in uh, Philadelphia County and some of the suburban counties and somewhat in the Northeast, but the West and the North were, were, were somewhat spared. That is not what we're seeing now. Uh, suburban co- uh, counties are very impacted, as are rural counties and, of course, our major cities such as Philadelphia and, and Pittsburgh. Um, so uh, I expect that, unfortunately, that this trend is going to continue uh, I think that we have great challenges, um, as Dr. Fauci has been talking about for weeks and weeks now. Um, as we go into the colder weather, you know, clearly the weather has turned, uh, as we found out yesterday when it was 48 degrees for our pre- outside press conference. And so uh, it dries people inside. And so respiratory viruses like COVID 19 spread um, uh, uh, much more when people are inside. So we
0: are in for challenges. Dr. Levine, I do want to get Mike's voice in here shortly, but if I may just follow up with one question, uh, you, we're seeing a difference this fall in comparison to the spring. Can you tell us why? And when you say differences, differences in our response? Oh, great question. Great follow-up. I mean, uh, in the spring, if I if I heard you correctly, we were had a greater impact in the urban area. Than in the country and the suburban, but here I'm hearing you say now that urban, suburban, country, we're finding the same pattern. So mm-hmm. why the difference in the spring to the fall? Uh, it's not exactly
2: clear, but this is trying to turn out to be a bigger wave. Uh, so you know we were very impacted. It was it was very steep curve. It was an exponential mm-hmm. rise. It's a little bit slower now, but um, but that was really located predominantly in the Northeast. Other parts of the country were not as significantly impacted in the spring. We were hoping for a summer renaissance, someone said, but we didn't get that. Uh, The South and the West were very impacted um, as the hotter weather drove them inside. Uh, And now, you know, the weather is, it's not getting better like it did in the spring. The spring of course gets better and better and you might start out in March and it's very cold and people are inside. But by the time you get to May and June, People are much more uh, able to go outdoors. Well, it's exactly the opposite now. Uh, and the weather, of course, will get uh, colder. And we're seeing increases uh, everywhere.
0: Very good. Thank you. All right. And Mike, how are you, Mike, by the
1: way? <laughs> uh, and I'm doing good. I hope you are. And Dr. Levine, thank you for joining us. This is quite a moment uh, to have an opportunity on our part to talk this through with you. And I'm gonna ask a couple of questions about variation in patterns, picking up a little bit on what Ann was just asking about. I think we know why New York was hard hit on the first round, but as you've looked at interstate differences over the last six months, uh, to what extent is it uh, in your view those, var- those var- variations, partly a product to what state health officials have done or maybe have not done versus a host of other factors. So okay. it's, a, it's a program on leadership and we're really interested in, in the difference that governors have made and people like yourself sure. have made over so, the last few months. Sure.
2: So, thank you. There are some biological differences, as we were saying. You know, so uh, in the summer, uh, the the, the, real, the warm weather uh, really leads to people in the south and certainly the southwest to go more inside. That leads to more spread of virus. Um, and now, uh, of course, with the colder weather, um, that's leading to spread of the virus. Now, there are some specific reasons why the Northeast was significantly impacted. Um, In in the spring, there were some specific super spreader events. Um, One conference actually in Boston um, seemed to trigger, um, it had more um, representatives from the Northeast. And actually, that one conference probably led to thousands and thousands of of cases. And then community spread um, in particularly New York and New Jersey, which were very hard hit, but Pennsylvania and and, uh, New England states as well. But you are correct. Um, There are very significant differences in the way that states are responding. Uh, Some of that is differences in terms of the recommendations of state health officials, but a lot of it is actually uh, differences in terms of the governor's uh, philosophy uh, in terms of how they wanted to respond to the to the pandemic. You know, basically, from a public health perspective, there are three ways to respond to a public health crisis of this proportion. You can work to contain it. Containment means testing. That means contact tracing. That means isolation and quarantine of those uh, that have the disease are isolated and those exposed quarantine. And that works to contain an outbreak. The second is mitigation. Mitigation is is how we work to mitigate the spread of the the virus. And that involves um, simple public health measures such as masks and hand washing and social distancing and avoiding large gatherings and even small gatherings. Uh, and then other potential mitigation efforts, which, which were necessary in the, in the for many states in the spring, such as business closures, school closures, et cetera. And then there's the vaccine. And later on, we can talk about the distribution of the vaccine, which is going to be a very significant leadership challenges. Well, containment is containment. I mean, uh, th- there were challenges in terms of the rollout of laboratory testing from the federal government. That was true in really uh, all states. Uh, I mean, we are having now um, up to fifty to 60,000 test results per day. We were happy if we got 100 or 200 or 300 test results in March. So um, the rollout of testing has has dramatically changed. Contact tracing, we've ramped up significantly. um, And uh, and isolation and quarantine is, is basic bread and butter public health. But the mitigation varied a lot. Uh, and it varied a lot from state to state, depending upon specifically uh, what the governor's um, philosophy was about that. Um, and so uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, I can talk about best. Uh, we had a very iterative strategy for mitigation. We, we came out strongly for masks. And then we had a universal mask order. Uh, we have had a specific guidance about um Uh, about hand washing, we've had specific guidance in orders about small and particularly large gatherings, indoors and outdoors. And then eventually we did have to close non-essential businesses and we had to close the schools. And we were able to bend the curve in terms of the number of new cases. There's actually an article uh, from the CDC in what is called the MMWR, the Mobility Mortality Weekly Report, uh, which outlines the success that Delaware had with the same type of measures. However, there have been other governors, uh, and this is particularly true uh, in the South and the West this summer, uh, who took a different path and they did not have mask orders, they did not limit gatherings, they did not limit businesses and schools, um, and uh, they essentially let it burn. Um, And uh, that turned out to be a very ineffective strategy this summer for states such as particularly uh, Florida, uh, Texas, Arizona, and there were others in the South and and perhaps the West, um, where eventually local officials and eventually even the the state officials had to take a more strict approach uh, to mitigation. Um, Unfortunately, there has been a significant politicalization of many uh, of these public health measures. Uh, I think that that's unfortunate. These are not political issues. These are not partisan issues. These are public health. Issues and it is not a political statement whether you wear a mask or not. It is simply a prudent public health measure. Um, I strongly feel that I know that the United States is is wonderful in terms of the freedoms that we have and have had under the Constitution for you know for several centuries now. However, with freedom comes responsibility, uh, and there is a responsibility to our neighbors, to our community, you know, to our states, and to our country. Uh, And this is not a new issue. We've always had a collective responsibility to work towards the common good. And right now, that collective responsibility is to work together and to stand united to fight this battle against COVID-19 and to take very simple public health measures of wearing a mask, washing your hands, um, social distancing and avoiding gatherings. Um, And I don't think that that's a, a limitation of one's freedom. I think that that is an expression of our collective responsibility to each other. Uh, to uh, for public health and the
0: common good. So good. I'm just Levine, going to jump in, Mike, for a second, yeah, just play. to remind everyone that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here with Mike Useem. And today we have a wonderful and special guest, Dr. Rachel Levine. Mike, please uh, follow, <laughs> follow up with your question. So,
1: uh, in fact, Dr. Levine, it's a direct follow-up in that, um, I'll put my words on it, Leadership matters. Uh, the state leadership, your leadership uh, matters. Nature's got its own hand, but uh, the actions of, of officials like yourself have been critical. Uh, turning to an area that you probably had to think a lot less about, I think everybody is struck how much variation there is country to country as well. And in particular, if you think about uh, some of the East Asian countries, Singapore, New Zealand, if we can count that as East Asia, uh, Korea, uh, they seem to have done a, um, a better job in containment, for sure. Of mitigation, vaccines, an open issue. To what extent, in your in your own estimate as well, as you've looked at what's happening in these other countries, is it also a matter of how local government and national governments have reacted? That helps explain why very few cases now, for example, in New Zealand, lots of cases in India. So there's the question. Um,
2: so absolutely. And I think that there are I mean, every country, of course, has their own um, their own um, government style and their own uh, formation of their government, whether in terms of a parliamentary democracy or um, the way we have it in our country versus other uh, other government um uh, establishments, and I think that uh, that has influenced things a lot. I think that there are also cultural differences. I mean, I think that culturally, um, uh, different societies and different countries are more amenable to uh, to government action uh, than than others are. Um, You know, I think some of it depends upon your philosophy, whether you think that that government action is there to help you or to or to somehow restrict you in some way. And, you know, I I think that uh, I feel as part of the as part of the government, as part of state government, that we are here to protect the public health. I am not here to limit anyone's freedoms. I am here to protect the public health, but as I said, with 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 freedom comes responsibility. Um, some countries have been able to take you know very significant uh, measures. Um, I just heard um, you know that uh, about Australia, New Zealand. I mean, they have prevented visitors from coming into their countries. They also have um, you know a, a, a different um, a different geography, and it's much easier in New Zealand to prohibit people coming into your country than it would be in the United States. But also, um, you know, a d- different. A different culture, different a different history that uh, perhaps allows them to do that. I think that that's true of, of of some of the Asian countries as well. I mean, many many individuals in Asian countries have been wearing masks since SARS. I mean, they've been wearing masks for 15 or 20 years now, and uh, when they go out in public, um, which is a very very culturally a different situation uh, than we are in the United States. But mm-hmm. I do think that we could stand more united, and I think you know, since the topic is leadership. I mean, I think that, that we need, we need sta- um, uh, leadership in, in, in local government. We need leadership in state government. I'm, you know, very proud to be serving in the, the Wolf administration. I think Governor Wolf has shown leadership of that degree. Uh, I think we need national leadership um, to, uh, to, to, to talk about these simple, particularly the simple public health measures uh, and try to make them as, as ubiquitous across the country as possible.
1: Great, I'd like to come back to that, but let me give the baton back to Anne.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Mike. Uh, Dr. Levine, since you mentioned national leadership, let me ask you what you would hope for in the upcoming uh, transition to the Biden administration. What would be your hope? So I'm gonna say completely non-political and non-partisan. I mean, I think that
2: what we're looking for in terms of federal leadership is is one, um, a consistent message about we're about working together to fight the virus. You know, we're, we're not fighting against each other. Governor Wolf has mentioned this a, a lot of times. Uh, we are all trying to, to, to support public health and fight against the spread of this virus. And so I think that we need to stand united to do that as a country. So I think that type of messaging would be very useful. Again, messaging the, the simple public health messages that, you know, local, state, and national public health leaders all agree on, which is masking, hand washing, uh, uh, social distancing, and and, and and avoiding large gatherings. Um, I think we need a national strategy, which I think has been lacking. I think we need a national strategy in terms of containment, mitigation, uh, and we need a consistent national strategy for, for the vaccine, which actually has been present. Uh, there have been some permutations of it during the fall, but really uh, I, it stands consistent at least right now. Um, and I think that we need a national strategy in terms of testing uh, um, uh, that was very lacking in the spring, which I think was very challenging for public health officials. It has been somewhat better, but you know, for example, the rollout of the antigen tests has been very uneven and, and challenging for mm-hmm. us. And so I think we need a national strategy of how we're going to do that. We need a national strategy in terms of case investigations and contact tracing. Um, with with, uh, reinforcement of the principles of isolation and quarantine. Um, And that's containment. I think we need a national strategy on mitigation. Uh, There will be some regional differences and statewide differences, but I think we need a consistent message on mitigation. Um, And again, in terms of the vaccine, I mean, there was concern among public health officials in the early fall That the rollout of the vaccine would be um, uh, politicized, uh, that the approval process would be politicized. um, uh, As the president of ASTO uh, and other state health officials, we wrote a letter to the federal government about our concerns. Uh, That did get a significant response, and public health officials throughout the country uh, were very vocal about, uh, you know, we, we we can disagree about many things, but we certainly all agreed that the rollout of the vaccine. Uh, the development and then the distribution of the vaccine should not be politicized in every way. Uh, we're very pleased by the the uh, reaction over the last number of months of um, federal officials, uh, Dr. Hahn at the FDA, um, Dr. Redding at CDC, um, Dr. Burks, uh, Dr. Giroir, um the Assistant Secretary of Health, and among others that uh, that that. Um, reinforced that idea that the vaccine development should not be politicized, that the, that the, you, know, you can't put a date on when vaccine trials will be done. The science is the science. Um, it seems that that is bearing true with Operation Warp Speed. Uh, the Pfizer vaccine um, has had very successful uh, trials. We're waiting for the completion of their safety trials. Then the FDA will analyze it and then issue an emergency use authorization when that is ready. Uh, and then the CDC will be looking at it for recommendations, and then it'll start its distribution. There'll be three phases of rollout. We can talk even more about the vaccine. It's very complicated. It will require a coordination of federal, state, and local leadership, both public health and otherwise, to to accomplish this task. It is extremely complex and challenging, um, but that's what we're that's what we're all working on. And I think that it hasn't been politicized but there were significant concerns in september about that
0: mm-hmm. oh, so good i'm i am curious you of the three strategies containment mitigation and the vaccine and i know that we will want to get into the vaccine in more detail but can can you help us appreciate the importance of containment and and the reason i ask you this that when a person is tested we know that that individual may be free of the disease at that moment, but that doesn't mean in the next day or the next week (laughs) that individual is free of the disease. So if you could just help us appreciate the importance of testing and contact tracing.
2: Well, testing particularly symptomatic people, but then others that are asymptomatic but might have been exposed, et cetera, um, uh, is is critically important. And that was one of the, the significant encumbrances that we had in the spring that prevented containment because the the rollout of the vaccine was very challenging uh, for state and local health officials in the spring. But here we are now with 50,000 test results per day. Um, And so that is absolutely critical. Uh, It gets complex. There are different tests. There's the PCR test. There's the antigen test. They have different accuracies or sensitivity and specificity, so we won't get that complex. But the um, but uh, we need to continue to expand testing, and we'd like to eventually be able to do more surveillance testing of asymptomatic populations. We are doing that in nursing homes, and we, we're, we're pushing for that to happen on college campuses as well, and we'd like to expand that. Uh, those that are positive are notified, and they need to isolate. They need to isolate um, for, and there's a specific um, uh, isolation protocol from the CDC, um, so they have to, w- when they come out of isolation, that they have to have at least a week from the time that they tested positive, and they need to have uh, absolutely no symptoms for for at least two days. So there's a specific recommendation from the CDC. They really, We really need people to do that. People need, we, we try to reach everybody that's positive. Now, we have over 5,000 new cases a day. It's hard to reach everybody. We have to do some prioritization. But um, uh, we, to the best of our ability, we try to reach people. But we need people to answer the call. Now, we say that from you know working with us. But actually, I mean answer the phone. <laughs> they need to <laughs> answer their phone uh, when it says Department of Health calling. Because otherwise, we can't discuss with them the isolation protocol. So we need people to answer their phone. That's a challenge. And then we what we do is a case investigation, where we find out where they might have been exposed, and try to, to, to triangulate that to see where there are clusters. And then we we get their contacts, we get who they might have exposed, and then we call them. That's called contact tracing. Again, we need people to literally answer their phone because we can't talk to them about quarantine if they don't if they don't talk to us. Uh, and then these individuals need to quarantine for two weeks. Now, that's a real challenge, but the incubation period is up to two weeks. There are some new isolation protocols, which might be less um, challenging for people that are being considered by the CDC, but nothing definitive yet. I am hopeful by the end of the year that we might be able to have a, dip, a slightly less um, you know, uh, uh, lim- limiting Isolation, uh, quarantine protocol, but that's what it is right now, uh, and that's how we contain the spread of the virus and box it in, so to speak, um, and prevent um, you know a cluster from becoming a significant outbreak, etc. So, but we and but we need people to answer our call, and we need people to actually agree to and follow through with isolation and quarantine. Now, actually, as Secretary of Health, I have the legal authority to make them do that. Uh, but we're not anxious to go to court and to make people do that. We want them to do the right thing to help their families, their neighbors, and their communities, and to isolate and quarantine. That is containment. As you start to get numbers of you know, 3,000, 4,000,
0: 5,000 new cases a day, it becomes very difficult to do that.
2: But we're still trying.
0: I'd just like to ask you uh, briefly to talk a bit about mitigation, the second strategy that you mentioned in the first half of the show. And there's a real tension between health and wealth, these two competing values uh, across the United States. So, can you give us some sense of how we can manage to satisfy both? Sure. So, uh, the initial mitigation strategies
2: that we would really like to promote, and I talk about every day um, is are simple, and they don't impact the economy. And that means wearing a mask. That means social distancing as much as possible, six feet or et cetera. That means washing your hands and using hand sanitizer and as much as you can to avoid large, large gatherings. Um, those are simple mitigation measures that will have a dramatic impact on the spread of the virus, and they do not impact our, our economy in any way. Um, other mitigation factors, when things are getting out of control, can impact the economy. Um, and, uh, and so that can be, that can be challenging. Uh, and, you know, uh, we, from a public health perspective, and certainly from a uh, local, state, and government perspective, you have to balance many factors. Uh, you have to balance um, the, the public health <coughs> needs to stop the spread of the virus uh, versus the impact on the economy. Uh, which is obviously critical for uh, for, for people, um, and uh, in, in terms of you know the unemployment and and uh, getting food on the table, um, and uh, societal impacts, for example, um, children in school, um, etc. So there, you have to balance all of those all of those factors. Um, what I can tell you is that it is clear that you cannot have a successful economy if the virus is burning. Um, if you have unrestrained increase in the virus. Um, And you have, for example, in the summer in Florida, uh, they had up to 15,000 new cases a day. Um, And if the virus is increasing in that exponential way, it increases very quickly. If you look at that curve, it goes up very, very quickly. Um, And and, and so you're not going to have a successful economy. First of all, people are getting very sick. Um and and it's stressing the hospital system. And the hospital system this summer in Florida, Texas, Arizona were very stressed. The hospital systems now in the Midwest, Wisconsin, North Dakota, South Dakota, Illinois now, Chicago, and other states are being very, very stressed um, and potentially overwhelmed. We certainly saw that in the spring in New York City and in much of New Jersey. Then uh, that's going to damage the economy. Um, and then uh, you know, people are not going to be able to, to do their daily activities and, you know, and spend money and lubricate the economy if, um, uh, if the virus is completely out of control. And so it does have to be a balance, but you have to make sure that the mitigation measures are not so draconian, is that, is that it severely impacts people's lives. It gets into what I like to talk about, um, uh, which, which is health equity and the social determinants of health those are the the issues that we do not usually think of as health issues, but do dramatically impact people's health. Um, Economic opportunity, a living wage, impact people's health. That's To me, that's a health issue. Nutrition, availability of nutrition is a health issue. The environment is a health issue. Education is a health issue. Housing is a health issue. Transportation is a health issue. And so if you have mitigation measures too strict for too long, that will negatively impact people's health uh, in general. So the virus is not the only variable, but you can't just let it burn because, and you can't go for quote unquote herd immunity. We've heard that term uh, for a, 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 a global pandemic. Because first of all, you won't reach herd immunity. And the second is, is that that's going to such impact people's health and uh, our, our healthcare system so negatively that it is beyond the pale.
1: Mike, please, follow up. And <laughs> yeah, Dr. Levine, I'm going to turn this in a direction of asking you a couple of questions here about uh, your life professionally as follows. You became Secretary of Health um, in March 18. Two years later, the world seems to kind of just go almost upside down as the virus arrived on our shores. and really interested here in in one of the premises of of the discipline that Nan and I are a part of is that leadership, your leadership, the governor's leadership is going to have greatest impact when life is changing, when life is uncertain, especially when there's a crisis. So to make that more directed at your your own service as a leader for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, could you describe a day at the office now compared to two years ago? Sure. So,
2: um, uh, you know, as Secretary of Health, I've had different priorities, um, the opioid crisis, Hmm. um, uh, maternal child health, environmental health, uh, et cetera. But I always said that one of my top three priorities had to be public health preparedness, because Hmm. what would keep me up at night is the risk of a global pandemic. Unfortunately, that turned out to be prescient. And here we are. So, I mean, we were prepared. I mean, at the the, the Pennsylvania Department of Health. Um, uh, you know, it, it, we, we had thought that it might be a pandemic flu, it has actually turned out to be pandemic coronavirus, which has changed things. Um, but, uh, you know, we were prepared, uh, but this has, you know, exceeded anyone's uh, thoughts about the size and scope of what we might, of what we might face. Um, so, uh, you know, starting in March, uh, I can tell you one of the dramatic things is that I'm no longer in my office. Uh, in March, when we started to have our first cases, um, uh, the Government uh, went, the administration went remote, uh, and we went uh, in, our, in our incident command center for the coronavirus pandemic uh, to the uh, Pima building. So you can see behind me, Pennsylvania Emergency Management Agency. And so uh, since the very beginning of March, I have been coming to a little office in Pima uh, where our incident command center is uh and literally have not stepped foot in my office since the day i walked out the door that morning so the pen is probably still sitting there the 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 chair is a little askew and whatever papers i was looking at i stood up took my notebook and my computer and walked out the door and we have been at pima ever since so we pretty much live at this at this Hmm. building so that is dramatically different um you know the pennsylvania department of health has around uh 1300 employees Uh, and a budget of over a billion dollars, and we have many public health issues that we deal with, the vast majority of those people are working remotely. And I cannot tell you, I cannot be more proud of our employees at the Pennsylvania Department of Health never have seen such a dedicated, hardworking, competent group of people. And all of those, that public health work continues. The WIC Women, Infants and Children's Program continues. All that stuff continues. We are in, however, an incident command center at PIMA uh, working with the governor's office uh, and the the, the, uh, the PIMA staff every day in terms of addressing uh, addressing this coronavirus. Um, so um, you know, I am here from seven to six at least, uh, and then you know, a lot of time on the you know sometimes working from home computer and the phone, um, uh, seven days a week working on this issue but also keeping t- track of all the other public health issues that come up.
1: Let me do a quick follow up on that as well. And that is uh, in the at the moment, issues of social justice obviously are paramount uh, well locally and, and nationally. And I think that's going to be put to it, those issues are going to be put to a test once a vaccine becomes available. And I know you're already thinking about that, but as we get into the spring months, uh, the Pfizer option becomes available. What is your thinking about ensuring that uh, the right people receive the vaccine early, we sustain social justice in the best sense of that phrase and beyond?
2: Sure. So social justice and health equity would be the term that we would use in public health has been an issue throughout the pandemic. The, the COVID-19 pandemic has demonstrated even more significantly the, uh, uh, the health disparities that exist in Pennsylvania and throughout our, our nation. Uh, and we have been working, we have a health equity task force uh, that actually collaborates with the Lieutenant Governor's health equity task force um, in terms of that issue now, both for COVID-19 and other issues. It's a very important issue in terms of the distribution of the vaccine. Uh, We have a COVID crisis committee and uh, of healthcare and other stakeholders and we meet every week. And we have been discussing exactly that in terms of the prioritization of the distribution of the vaccine to make sure that health equity is prominent um, and um, and that vulnerable populations are immunized.
1: And last question for me before we leave that topic, as you look at the spring, do you worry more about too many people crowding in to get the vaccine, or too many people deciding not to take the vaccine?
2: Well, I worry about both. Um, so I worry that um, about people's expectations about the vaccine. Uh, you know, it is going to roll out in three phases. The Pfizer vaccine is very challenging; has to be kept at minus 80 degrees centigrade, ultra ultra cold chain uh, distribution. There are only specific hospitals and health systems that can actually. Get the vaccine and store it and then work to administer it depending you know yeah. in terms of how that works out um and so you know we're going to be immunizing uh healthcare personnel broadly um and, and then in uh phase 1a and then phase 1b it's supposed to go to um uh, some chain pharmacies to be distributed to seniors in long-term care living facilities uh, there are six vaccines that are being developed uh that are in uh, operation warp speed uh which they got from star trek i guess and uh, we don't know about how they're all going to come out in terms of their clinical trials. Uh, they all have different schedules. They all have probably have different effectiveness. Uh, they all uh, five out of the four, uh, five out of the six require two shots. Um, so you can think of the complexity hmm. of this distribution. But, you know, in phase one uh, B and phase two, we're going to need to distribute it to, uh, to vulnerable populations, minority populations. Um, other seniors, um, and so it's a very complex distribution and administration. In the end, it's not just the vaccine. It's getting the vaccine into an arm, Uh, and we have to get past vaccine hesitancy as as well about the safety and effectiveness of the vaccine. So those are the
0: challenges that stand before us.
1: Great. Thank Thank you. you.
0: Mm, So good. Let me remind everyone, you're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here with Mike Yusim. And today our guest is Pennsylvania Secretary of Health, Dr. Rachel Levine. Uh, Dr. Levine, may I follow up on this thread uh, and take a leadership perspective? We know there are groups of people in the, co- in the country known as anti-vaxxers. We know that uh, we've been in turbulent times, uncertainty, and uh faith in science <laughs> has been tossed into question. So how how do you lead and reinstate confidence that the vaccine uh, is sound, is safe, and is the right choice for sure. the population?
2: So I think that our communication and our messaging is going to have to be very consistent. I think it needs to be consistent from the federal government uh, to, uh, and federal public health, to and the federal government itself, leadership we talked about, um, as well as um, state government and state public health, and then local and municipal leaders and those public health officials. I think that the more consistency we have in their message, the better. I think that the um, the, the messages that came out in the, in the in the, uh, in September, uh, the end of the summer in September, about um, perhaps a political agenda associated with the vaccine were potentially damaging. I think that that's better now, but I think that we're gonna have to regroup about that, that there has been no politicalization about the the development and then the distribution of this vaccine. It is strictly a public health measure and the decisions about the distribution and administration are being made uh, with a public health lens only. Uh, with health equity and, and, and other variables as we as we discussed. I think that we're going to need to talk about um, how we're prioritizing and be very and be very um, transparent about that. And I think that we're going to need to be consistent about the safety and the effectiveness and the limitation of our knowledge about safety and effectiveness as well. You know, most vaccines really developed over four years. Um, and uh, this the, the studies for these vaccines will continue. Uh, but if you waited four years, then it'd almost be too late. So um, you know, I agree with how they've done Operation Warp Speed. Um, I don't know, love the name because it's pithy, but, but it might lead people to think that it's rushed. Um, uh, so I uh, hope we're going to have to get past that, is that there have been robust safety and efficacy trials um, on the vaccine. What you can't do is do a four-year trial in six months. Um, so uh, we need to be transparent and honest about that, Uh, but we're also gonna need to talk about the importance of the vaccine to to be able to get past relying only on containment and mitigation, as we were discussing before. It was really the third pillar of our response will be this the the safety and effectiveness and the distribution of the vaccine where you can develop herd immunity. Herd immunity is really a term that is used in terms of the the distribution of the vaccine. Uh, For instance, we have talked about herd immunity in terms of the measles vaccine, et cetera. You're not going to develop herd immunity by just letting it burn. It's it's a misunderstanding of of how it works. So um, that's our challenge. So we all stand ready to do that.
0: Uh, One more for me, then back to Mike. Uh, Can you say a little bit more about leading in uncertainty, what we don't know about the vaccine? You said there will be many unknowns. So just elaborate a little bit. I think it's very important uh, for me and
2: other public health officials, uh, again, to be very honest, direct, and forthright about about science. And I have tried to the best of my ability to do that since the beginning of the pandemic and in the spring when I had daily press conferences, is to tell people what we know. Uh, This is the data that we have, Uh, to tell people what we don't know. This is a novel coronavirus. There is still much that we don't know. Uh, what I articulate now is is just try to do the same. Uh, what we know about the virus, what we know about the data, the limitations of our data. This has been the data challenge of a lifetime. To, I mean, usually we report flu numbers every week. We've been reporting, and that's the most. I mean, we report some, some infections quarterly uh, or yearly. So doing this every day uh, is a significant data challenge. You know, public health has not been extremely well-funded. Uh, locally, statewide, or nationally, um, uh, in in over the last uh, you know twenty years or more. So uh, our data systems are challenged. So I have just tried to be very open and honest about science, about what we know, what we don't know, um, to sometimes uh, project into the future, but to be clear about my you know my inability to tell the, you know to to completely predict the future. I can give some estimates, but I can't predict the future. And so. I have tried to do that to the best of my ability, you know, um, over the course of the last 10 months.
0: Well, I'll just, before I hand the baton to Mike, just let me say that uh, I have a dear friend named Mary Francis. And when I told her that I was interviewing you today, her response was, Oh, I love her. She's so honest and courageous. <laughs> so you. your, your attempt to be transparent and honest is coming through at least to a uh, One, one
1: dear friend. So, Mike. uh, Dr. Levine, I also, just to pick up what Anne was saying, I think I've also picked up a consistent note of optimism in your voice. A confidence, we're gonna face this, we're gonna solve it, we're gonna get beyond it. Uh, Could you say a few words about that? uh, Kind of from the inside, do you see, for example, more governors embracing mitigation measures uh, do you see the um, uh, well, the federal agencies in, in the same way of thinking, gradually sometimes, but nonetheless moving in the direction you would like to see them move, such that, let's make it uh, four or five months out, the ideas that have been sometimes not widely held as to how to mitigate, uh, how to contain, will become more commonplace and accepted? What do you think?
2: Sure. So, uh, yes. So you have detected a note of optimism. Now, uh, uh, I will freely be transparent that I am, in, by nature, an optimistic, hopeful, positive person. Um, I think it's critical to be realistic. I mean, the challenges that we're going to face over the next three or more months are significant. Uh, but but I, I, by nature, take an optimistic tone. Um, I think that our challenges will continue. But yes, I think that with federal leadership, um, and uh, um, and more states and more governors, it might not be you know unanimous, are going to understand that you know we have three tools in our toolbox, and that's what that's the toolbox. So we have containment; we have to use containment to the best of our ability. We have to use mitigation, but as we discussed previously, you have to balance that with the economy and with other significant social issues and education, et cetera. I understand that, um, and then we're going to be rolling out the vaccine. Um, I think that uh, when you look in a year, we're going to be in a much better position in regards to COVID-19, and I think that 2022 uh, looks very positive. I think 2021 uh, will be challenging, but continually to get better. But at the same time, I don't want to underestimate or you know uh, have people be complacent about the challenges that we're going to face this winter, which is exactly what Dr. Fauci says uh, every day.
1: Yep. Uh, To put my uh, two words to sum that up, uh, we've heard from many people on this program, similar themes, sometimes phrased differently, but in a position of responsibility like your own, especially at a challenging moment like the present one, some combination of optimism and realism is the way you want to behave, the way you want to think. And I I heard that in, 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 well, directly from you just now, which leads me to close to my, my last question here. And that is this, uh, given the circumstance this year, I would personally predict that the level of interest in becoming a public health professional is going to soar in the next couple of years. You're going to have more people applying for schools of nursing, more people want to become a healthcare worker, more people would like to become a physician or a public health official like you. With that as my premise, uh, looking back on your own evolution, from where you were, let's say, a few years back to where you are now, what advice would you have for people who are coming into public health in whatever particular avenue that would help them develop a a professional course and a career and ultimately their leadership in the field like you have now? So looking back, what would you advise for them going forward? Sure.
2: Well, I I think that this the the global pandemic um, has shown the importance of public health at all levels. Uh like nothing before. And so um, I'm, I'm hopeful that you are right, that more people will go in and be interested in terms of medical um, fields and public health fields. There are many, um, I think that uh, it is useful to, I mean, if you're going to go into, you know, state, local or public health government uh, to have a, a public health background, um, you know, I know that, for example, the University of Pittsburgh uh, School of Public Health might in the future offer, offer a bachelor's. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, right now, it's more of a master's, but that would be great. So if more schools did that, uh, many people go get a master's in public health. And, of course, some even people new doctorates. Um, but I do want to point out, actually, that my original field was not public health. Uh, I mean, I'm a pediatrician adolescent medicine specialist, um, and I have been in academic medicine my entire career, um, and uh, went from uh, being um, uh, vice chair of pediatrics uh, at Penn State Hershey Medical Center and, uh, and professor of pediatrics and psychiatry at the Penn State College of Medicine, um, uh, it, it then became physician general, and then secretary of health. And my clinical background, I have used tremendously- in terms of the leadership that I've uh, um, tried to show uh, during this crisis. I mean, I, I think that my medical background has served me very well. My leadership experiences have served me well. Uh, my leadership um, uh, training in terms of different courses of study, et cetera, has served me very well. So I think that uh, at the same time, I, it certainly is great to study public health as a student, um, I think you um, you know other medical fields can lend themselves to to, to public health as 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 well. Um, you know, um, one note of caution um, is that public health officials at the state, local, and national level have never been as challenged and never received the pushback that we have received now. I mean, it's always an, a challenging job, um, but you know, it's unusual for public health officials to have death threats. Um, and at the state, local, and national level, uh, that has happened. Uh, I never would have expected um, protests in front of my suburban house out you know in, in Hershey. Um, I never would have expected that the national that the uh, state police would be sitting outside my house while there were protests. Um, I have come off social media because of the um, uh, not nice things that have been said um, in social media I'll be politically yeah. correct so uh, and many other public health officials um, have seen that and many have left. Uh, and we have seen an exodus, actually. It's kind of hard to recruit someone to be a state health official or local health official at this time uh, because of the, uh, of the uh, severe reaction uh, that people have had. I mean, I, I think that that's unfair. I mean, none of us want to hurt people. We're just really trying in our different ways to advocate for, for public health. Um, and so hopefully that will go, start to diminish as time goes by and then uh, public health officials will be a thriving field. Right now, it's actually hard to recruit people.
0: So we're just up on the clock here. So Dr. Levine, Mikey and I really want to thank you so much for joining us on the show. It was so informative, um, a service in and of itself, and also inspiring just to have this opportunity to speak with you. So thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here.
1: (laughs) Very good. Uh our pleasure.
0: So let me just thank everyone for joining us. If you have a question about something you've heard on today's show, email us at businessradioseriousxm.com. Once again, a special thank you to our guest, Dr. Rachel Levine. I'd also like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here with Mike Useem, and you've been listening to Leadership and Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Serious XM. Channel 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.